scripture is taken from the Gospel of John. Let us turn to John chapter 13, reading from verse 1 to 20. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, John chapter 13, verse 1 to 20. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the, the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The Lord bless the reading of this word. Thank you. Oh, that, was, that was me bounding up the steps. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you again this morning. Uh, let me pray for us, and then let's look at God's word together. Let's all pray. Dear Father, we pray for your help. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are soft, hands and feet that are quick to do your word. Father, we pray that you would make us more like Jesus, our servant king. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Let me begin with a story. So many years ago, uh, a large group of men and women embarked on a massive building project. Uh, they, they were going to build a city with tall skyscrapers. So they found a piece of land, they made plans, and they began to gather construction materials. Now, this city was going to be the pride of the entire world. It was going to be a world-class city 
that would attract people from all the nations, people who want to come and live in this city. So everyone who was involved in this project was, you know, as you can imagine, excited. You know, if they were going to build something great and significant, they were going to make a name for themselves. What's the name of this city? It's Babel. But it may, it may well have been New York, London, Dubai, Shanghai, or Singapore. Now, all around the world, people are striving for success and significance. Now, we all want greatness in some shape or form, however we define greatness. Now, the world measures greatness by fame, by fortune, you know, in terms of power, prestige, popularity. Now, maybe our definition of greatness is you know, a bit more modest than that. You know, we're not aiming for too much. Maybe we define greatness by a, a meaningful career, a successful job, a happy marriage, uh, successful children, well-adjusted children, obedient children. Maybe we define greatness by a worry-free life where we can afford nice things, go on nice holidays. Maybe some of us define greatness by even just a comfortable and healthy retirement. Now, how are we trying to make a name for ourselves? Now, where do we find significance and greatness? Now, the question of greatness isn't a new one. In, in the Gospels, Jesus' 12 disciples, they, they all wanted to be great. You know, it's, it's quite striking. On, on the road to Jerusalem, as, as they're accompanying Jesus to his death, what were they talking about? You know, what, what were the disciples concerned about? as they were going with Jesus to Jerusalem. They were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. You know, James and John, they even sent the big gun, right? They, they sent their mom. <laughs> James and John sent their mom to Jesus and asked, hey, hey, mom, can you talk to Jesus? Ask him to let us sit on his right hand and his left in glory. But they, don't, they all wanted to be great. What does it mean to be truly great? We're in this new sermon series as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter. We'll be spending some time in the Gospel of John, just looking at various passages in the Gospel of John in the lead-up to Good Friday and Easter. And really, as we move along these few weeks, we want to prepare our hearts to focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ, you know, to know who He is and then to know what He's come to do. And as we look at Jesus, King Jesus really shows us what true greatness looks like as we follow Him on the road to the cross. So do we want to be truly great? Do we want significance? Do we want meaning? The answer in the Bible is to listen and look to Jesus. And this passage tells us three main things about Jesus and what it means to follow Him. And we're looking at three, these three main things in our sermon this morning. Number one, the, the King loves lavishly. Verses 1 to 5. In, in verse 1, we're, we're told that Jesus' hour had come. Now, in John's gospel, the hour is a repeated phrase in this gospel. It's, it's as if a clock is ticking. You know, the hour is coming. The hour is coming. And then here we're told that Jesus' hour had finally come. And it's now time for Jesus to complete the mission given to him by God the Father. And Jesus knew it was his time to go to the cross. And so far, if you, if you read the life of Jesus, his, his life and ministry has, have been characterized by perfect love. And, and now, at the point of greatest suffering, 
at the point of greatest conflict and sacrifice, you know, what, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do as, as the suffering in his life climaxes? What would he do? Did he stop loving because it was too costly to love? Well, this passage tells us Jesus loved his own to the end. Jesus loved his own to the end. This means that Jesus loved to his final breath on the cross. This means Jesus loved to the uttermost, to the nth degree. Now, Jesus' love is, is love in its highest intensity. Now, th this love is unwavering, it's unchanging, it's unfailing love. And this is the love that leads Jesus to love to the end, to persevere in obedience and willingly suffer the horrors of the cross that soon await him. And this is how Jesus loves all whom the Father has given to him. Now, friends, if, if we belong to Christ, we can be completely assured of his love. Now, my, my encouragement to you, the encouragement from God's word to you is we, we shouldn't let sin or weakness or discouragement keep us away from Jesus. Now, the encouragement from this verse is to go to Jesus now, to know that he loves us to the end. You know, our, our stability and security in the Christian life are not founded on how well we love Jesus. Now, our, our love often wavers. Our, our love grows cold. Our, our love is weak. You know, but praise God that our confidence is not in ourselves, but our assurance is founded on the unshakable love, the unshakable rock of Jesus' love for us. And so keep our eyes on Christ. Look to Him. Focus on Him and His amazing love for us. And, and don't lose heart. No, we can cling to Christ because He clings to us in love. You know, we sing this song, and this is a stanza from this song that we sing here. You know, when, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. You know, I, I could never keep my hope through life's fearful path, my, my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. This Jesus loves to the end. Now, what a great truth to begin our time with. Just focus on that, meditate on that. This Jesus loves us to the end. How does, how does Jesus show his love in this passage? He demonstrates his love by washing his disciples' feet. Now, to be clear, Jesus did not have to do that. He didn't have to wash his disciples' feet. You know, there was absolutely no precedence, there was no custom of a master ever touching the feet of his followers. You know, it's simply not done. You know, even, even disciples in, in those days were not expected to wash one another's feet. Uh, the best of friends wouldn't touch one another's feet. I think, I think we can relate to this. If, if, I were to, you know, if, if you were to wash someone's feet... You know, that, that would be a big step, wouldn't it? You know, it's something that we just, we don't, we don't naturally gravitate to do something like that. You know, foot washing was something that only the lowliest of the low slaves would do. You know, in fact, in, in that culture, uh, it, it was considered so demeaning that, that even Jewish servants refused to wash the feet of their masters. You know, they say, you know, it's almost like you drop an employment contract. I agree to do everything except wash your feet, you know, because it was so 
demeaning for Jewish servants to do. They, they just refuse to do it at all. Are we unwilling to do certain things to serve others because we think it's below us? Or are we unwilling to serve certain people because we think they are below us? You know, it, it's helpful to think, to know that Jesus didn't think in this way at all. You know, by, by washing his disciples' feet, Jesus was doing something shocking, uh, even scandalous. That's what Jesus was doing. No, Jesus' love is, is over the top. It, it's, it's super abundant. You know, we, we can never fully grasp the height and depth, the length and breadth of the riches, the overflow of Jesus' love. You know, he washes his disciples' feet, doing something that was completely unnecessary. You know, it was enough for him to go to the cross. I mean, that would have displayed the love that he had for his people. But what does he do? He, he even stoops to prove that by washing his disciples' feet. You know, look at verses 4 and 5. You notice how specific verses 4 and 5 are in describing Jesus' actions. You know, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment. He took a towel and tied it around his waist. He, he poured water into a basin. And he washed his disciples' feet. Now you think, why... And, and then he, he wiped them with the towel that was around his waist. So why, why does John spend all, all this time just describing these very mundane actions? You know, it's just washing feet. Right? Why, why does John take all these verses to talk about very, very mundane actions? Why does he do that? I think John is purpose, purposely slowing down the narrative here because he wants us to really meditate on the shocking aspect, the amazing aspect of what Jesus is doing. Every single mundane action matters. Because every single mundane action is, a, is an amazing reflection of the deliberate love of Jesus Christ. Every single step. He stoops, he takes the towel, washes, he wipes every single action is a deliberate act of love on the part of Jesus Christ. You know, his, his love is not accidental. His love is not random. His love is not callous. But his love is intentional. Right down to the nitty-gritty routine of what Jesus is doing in these verses. You know, you know John wants us to slow down and to think, wow. You know, he wants us to reflect on the amazing nature of Jesus' love for his disciples. And, and his love is even more amazing when we read verse 3. Now, Jesus knew that the Father had given him all power and authority. All power and authority given to him by the Father. That's what it says in verse 3. Now, what would we do if we had all power and authority? What would we do with all the power that's been given to us, you know, if, if we had that kind of power, what would we do with it? I can tell you what I'll be tempted to do. I'll be tempted to use my power to serve myself. And I'll be tempted to use my power to ensure that everyone else does what's most important, which is to serve me. That's what I'll be tempted to do if I had all power and authority. You know, but, how, but how did Jesus show his power and authority? 
He stooped to serve with complete humility and self-sacrificial service. Now, Jesus turns the values and the ways of the world upside down. You know, his glory, you know, we, we, we'd expect his glory to be revealed at the moment of great triumph, right? Some, some kind of glorious, powerful triumph. You know, that, that's what we would expect. But, but Jesus' glory is revealed, his power and authority are revealed when? At the moment of greatest weakness. At the moment of greatest service. That's how Jesus shows his power and authority. Now, Christ is not glorified when we boast of our authority and accomplishments. No, he's not glorified when we say to him, hey, look at all these great things that I've done for you. Now, sadly, I've, I've heard too many Christians boast about themselves in this way. Christ is most glorified when we humble ourselves before him and, and say to him, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's when Christ is most glorified. Now, Christ is most glorified when we make ourselves nothing and we humbly love and serve others because we have received grace from Christ. Christ is most glorified when we do these things because He Himself was most glorified when He humbled Himself. Friends, do we, do we realize that Jesus loves us more than we can ever imagine? You know, in, in this passage, Judas is still around. You know, he, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him and, and still Jesus was willing to wash the feet of all his disciples, including the one who would sell him out. You know, but Judas, he, he took Jesus' love for granted, didn't he? Shortly after the washing of the feet, Judas leaves into the night and sells Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. So Jesus took, uh, Judas took Jesus' love for granted. You know, he looked like a disciple, but his heart was really far from Jesus. And, and there's, a, there's a little warning in this text for us as well, that, that we shouldn't be like a Judas. Now, we shouldn't presume on the kindness and love of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't say that, oh yeah, of course Jesus loves me. I can just do whatever I want and He'll still love me. No. no Jesus calls us to respond to His love by turning away from ourselves and by turning to Him in faith, humbling ourselves before Him, trusting in Him, giving ourselves entirely to this King who loves us lavishly. You know, as we've just sung, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, don't, don't hold anything back from Jesus because He did not hold anything back from loving you. Second thing we see about Jesus, number two, the, the king serves self-sacrificially, verses 6 to 11. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet as, as a way to point forward to what he will soon do at the cross. Now, the foot washing here is a bit of a symbol to indicate that one, you know, soon Jesus will cleanse us, not just our feet, but he'll cleanse us of our sins through his sacrificial death on the cross. And the, the foot washing shows us that Jesus is the king who serves self-sacrificially. How? By laying down himself, by laying down his life in order to save others. And we can tell that the disciples don't quite understand this. 
So when Jesus comes to Peter, Peter says, hey, don't touch my feet. You know, he's like, don't, don't wash my feet. But Jesus says, you know, he's sort of explaining what he's doing. Jesus says, hey, hey if, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You know, Jesus is saying the, the only way for us to belong to him is if we are washed by him. The only way to have a share with Jesus is to believe that he alone is able to wash our sins away, the guilt and pollution of our sins, and only he is able to make us truly clean. Jesus is actually telling us how we become a Christian. Right? He's saying, in order, to be, in order to become my follower, what do you need to do? In, in a sense, nothing. Just trust in me. Trust that I am able to make you clean by washing you clean. You know, we, we don't become a Christian by trying to be a good person or by doing good works. But we become a Christian by simply putting our faith in this one who washes us clean. Now, why wouldn't we want Jesus to wash us? You know, what's up with Peter, right? Why, why, does, why does Peter not want Jesus to wash his feet? You know, there are two reasons why we don't want Jesus to wash us. You know, one, we don't think we need washing. We don't think we need washing because we think we're all right. That we're not sinful. You know, and another reason is we, we think we can wash ourselves. We think that we're basically good people and the good that we do somehow outweighs the bad. Or, or maybe we think that the, the answer is found within ourselves, that, that we can improve ourselves enough to make ourselves acceptable to God. Or, or maybe, maybe the idea of a, a humble saviour just offends us. Right? I mean, we, if, if, we, if we want to be saved, we, we'd rather be saved by a saviour who is fully glorious, you know, like a, like a triumphant king who just conquers with his might and power. Maybe that's our idea of a saviour. You know, if, if I worship a king, I want my king to look like that. Right? Not, not a king who stoops, gets his hands dirty, uses his clothes and his towel to kind of serve and wash. You know, maybe, maybe the idea of a humble king just, just offends us. Maybe these are the reasons why we don't want Jesus to wash our feet. You know, but, but the heart of these reasons is really pride and self-righteousness. You know, maybe we're offended by the thought that we need to be rescued by God. And you know, like the people of Babel, we want to make a name for ourselves. We, we want greatness and significance. And oftentimes, we want greatness and significance without God. You know, the, we, we reason like this, right? If, if I don't have to depend on God, then I'm not obligated to Him. You know, if, if I don't have to trust in God, then I can do whatever I want because He has no hold over my life. Because, I, you know, I'm, I'm free. I'm a free agent. I make my own destiny. You know, if, if we are fine on our own, then we don't need God. In fact, whether, whether, God, whether God exists or not is, is beside the point because we've relegated Him to irrelevance and redundance. We just don't need Him. But, but this is the problem, isn't it? This is precisely the problem because we were made for so much more than life apart from God. You know, the, the Bible says that we were actually made not just for God's glory, but we ourselves were made for glory. You know, the, the Bible uses the language of how we will be glorified. 
No, that, that's what we were made for, for glory. Why? Because we were made by God in His image. Now, true greatness, according to Scripture, means to know God and to love Him. That's true greatness. That, that's what we were made for, for glory, in that sense. You know, imagine that I'm leaving on a trip to the Grand Canyon. You know, some of you have been to the Grand Canyon. You know, it's, 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 it's majestic. It, it's, the, the grandeur is, is staggering. So imagine I go to the Grand Canyon, you know, then I leave and I come back after a few weeks and, and you meet me and say, hey, how, how was your trip, Eugene? How was your trip to the Grand Canyon? You know, did you enjoy it? They say, yeah, I had a really good time. You know, there's this great gift shop at the Grand Canyon with fantastic postcards. You know, I, I had so much fun just hanging out at the gift shop looking at postcards. You know, it's like, wow, look at this picture. It was an amazing picture of the Grand Canyon. So I spent my whole holiday, two weeks, just looking at postcards of the Grand Canyon. I mean, if I, if I told you that, you'd think uh, you know, I'm a very silly man. <laughs> you know, I'm just foolish, right? I had the opportunity to enjoy the grandeur of the view. But what did I do? I just stay in a gift shop looking at postcards. You know, that, that's us. You know. our, our problem in, in wanting glory and significance apart from God is, is we're, we're looking at postcards. As C.S. Lewis put it, we're too easily satisfied. We're too easily satisfied by lesser glories. We're too easily satisfied by just looking at a postcard when the full majesty of the Grand Canyon is before us. You know, this is what sin does, doesn't it? Our pride, our self-righteousness, you know, pride shrinks our world. That's what pride does. Pride makes our world very, very small. Why? Because in, in, in our world, only I exist. And, and everything just kind of revolves around me. Right? What I want, my plans, my ideas, my preferences, my opinions, etc., etc. You know, pride kind of shrinks our world down to just me. It makes our world really, really small. But, but God says, hey, you're made for something so much more than that. Now, our sin has cut us off from God, which is a problem because we were made to know Him and enjoy Him. But the good news of the Gospel is that Jesus is able to wash us and make us clean so that we can have a share with Him. You know, the, the amazing news of the Gospel is that Jesus shares His glory with us. Jesus gives us new life by bringing us back to God through His death and resurrection. You know, one, one Christian author wrote these words, it is not true humility to refuse what the Saviour offers to do for us. You know, sometimes it's a very Asian thing, right? You know, people want to do something to you, say, hey, no, 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 I say, I say, you know, it's like, it's okay, it's okay, you know, don't, I, I can do it, I can do it, don't worry. You know, it's, it's, that's not true humility. That's a false kind of modesty. It's not true humility to refuse what the Saviour offers to do for us or to deny what He may have already done for us in His grace. This is pride. But the truest humility is to reverentially accept and thankfully acknowledge all the blessings of His grace. No, scripture doesn't begin with telling us to go serve Christ. But Scripture says we, we serve Christ because He has first 
served us. No, we, we can't serve Christ unless He first serves us. Now, I, I pray that we will grow more humble as a church by recognizing that we need Jesus, not just at the start of our Christian life, but we need Jesus always, constantly. In fact, this is what it means to grow like a Christian. You know, sometimes we think that a mature, a mature Christian is someone who has his or her life you know, well put together. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm strong, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of faithful, uh, I, I, you know, I read my Bible faithfully, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of knowledgeable. You know, sometimes we have this idea of this is what a mature Christian looks like. You know, someone who's really well put together, his life is kind of really well ordered and managed. But I suggest something different. I think growing in spiritual maturity doesn't mean that we have everything well put together. Growing in spiritual maturity actually means becoming more aware of our sinfulness, our weakness, and our insufficiency. I think that's actually what it means to grow as a Christian. You know, the, the beautiful irony of Christian growth is that as we, we see more of our sinfulness, we, we see more of our weakness, we, we see more of our insufficiency, we see more of Christ. And, and as we see more of our weaknesses, we actually cherish Christ more. You know, that, that's, that's what it means to grow as a Christian. It doesn't mean that we're strong. No, to grow as a Christian means that I, I see more of my need for Christ. And, and, and Christ becomes ever precious and valuable to me. Now that, that's what it means to grow as a Christian. Now the, the, the irony of Christian growth is that the more we grow, the more we will realize that we still need to grow. You know, in Christ, we have been washed. We don't need another washing. But Jesus tells us in these verses that our, our feet will still get dusty and we'll still struggle with sin. And a growing Christian is someone who recognizes his need for continual, ongoing foot washing, his need for continual repentance and faith. I, I need to come back to Jesus again and again and again to have my feet washed, to have my feet cleansed as he works his grace through my life again and again. Now, I pray that we will also be humble towards one another as a church. You know, one, one way of being humble as a church is to ask for help. Right? I'm, I'm not, that, that, that's actually a big step of humility, maybe, maybe especially in our culture where we find it hard to ask for help. Right? You know, sometimes we, we live as though we try to just solve our own problems. We keep things very tight you know, within, maybe within our immediate families. And, and the idea of asking the church family for help might not be the most natural thing for many of us. You know, I, I struggle with a refusal to ask for directions when I'm lost. This is before the time of Google Maps. You know, with Google Maps, even better, you don't have to ask anyone. But in the past, you know, when I would travel, uh, yeah, I, I would just refuse to ask for directions. You know, I'll, look, I'll stare at the map, I'll try to make sense of where I am myself so that I can just figure out myself how to get somewhere. You know, I just refuse to ask for directions. But maybe the first step to being humble as a church is, you know, we as a community should be a community that's willing to ask for help 
from one another. You know, to kind of humbly open up our lives to one another and say, hey, look, you know, actually, I can't manage. <laughs> you know, it's like for a new mom to, to say to uh, another lady or another, you know, another, some other folks in the church, look, you know, I just had this baby, I can't manage. Can you help me? Can you help me just babysit for a while so that I can just clear my head for two hours? Right, we, we need to kind of humble ourselves before one another and ask for help. That, that's the first step in humility. It takes humility to be willing to be served by others. Now, being humble means being vulnerable and transparent with one another. It, it, it does us no good to, to hide behind a, a facade of strength. But, but Christ is, is urging us to, to open our lives, to, to say to one another, help. Brother, sister, help. You know, I'm struggling with this. I feel overwhelmed. It could be work. It could be parenting. It could be caring for elderly parents, caring for a loved one. I feel really overwhelmed. Can you help me? Can you speak encouragement into my life? I'm struggling with a child who seems to be walking away from God. Can you help me? That's what it means to humble ourselves before one another, to ask for help and encouragement. Number three, the king calls us to follow in his servant-hearted footsteps. Verses 12 to 17. You know, the, 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 the Jesus' disciples, they, they were fighting along the way to Jerusalem, fighting over who was the greatest. So Jesus responds by showing them what true greatest looks like. You know, Jesus says, it's not about your abilities, it's not about your accomplishments. True greatness is found by looking at Christ. Now, Jesus says to his disciples, you want to see true greatness? Look at me. Look at me. And he calls us to follow in his servant-hearted footsteps. As he says in this passage, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Just as I have done to you. Just as Jesus has humbled himself to serve us, we should also humble ourselves and serve one another. The example of Jesus teaches us an important truth about the Christian life. You know, this singular secret of Christian discipleship. What is it? It's not about me. It's not about me. You can say it to yourself again and again, it's not about me. That's the truth of Christian discipleship, the secret of Christian discipleship that we all need to learn. It's not about me. Look to Jesus. As it says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. Now, if, if we call Jesus our teacher and our Lord, then we must be willing to listen to what the teacher says and we must be willing to do what our Lord tells us to do. Now, look at verse 17. Jesus says, knowing is not enough. Knowing is not enough. We are blessed only if we do. Blessed only if we do. Now, believing in Jesus will produce the fruit of behaving 
like Jesus. You know, that's, that's how you tell if a tree is really a good tree. Right? It bears fruit. A good tree will behave, you know, okay, I'm sorry, mixing metaphors there. A good tree will bear good fruit of behaving like Jesus. You know, that's how you know that you believe in Jesus. Serving one another like Jesus shows us that we also belong together, that we are His people together. You know, if our lives don't show evidence of believing in Jesus, if our lives don't show evidence of belonging to Jesus, you know, by belonging to community like this, you know, if, if our lives don't show evidence that we are behaving like Jesus, then we, we need to ask ourselves if Jesus is really our master. If our lives don't show evidence in these things, is Jesus really our teacher and our Lord? You know, and when I talk about serving, I, I don't just mean getting busy with a lot of activities or programs or ministries or just doing a lot of things. You know, that's, that's not what I'm saying primarily about serving. It's, it's not just about what we do. It's not just about how much we do. But, but serving is about how we serve and, and why we serve, the, the reasons and the motivations for why we serve. Serving in a Christ-like way doesn't just mean getting busy doing a lot of stuff. You know, don't, don't be like a martyr who's just busy with busy work. But, but really, serving in a Christ-like way means self-sacrificially loving others. That's what it means to serve in a Christ-like way, self-sacrificially loving others. You know, it means putting aside what I want, what Eugene wants. It means serving out of a heart transformed by love, by humility by the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, how, how can we tell if we are serving with a Christ-like attitude? I've got 10 questions for us to think about, 10 questions to reflect on. You know, how, how can we tell if we're serving with a Christ-like attitude? Are we more concerned about programs or people? Are we willing to build relationships with others, even with those who are not like us? Different people, whether in age, ethnicity, nationality, or culture. Are we willing to serve people, even if it means sacrificing our time, our energy, to help them to grow in Christ? You know, even if it means dealing with the messiness of each other's lives. You know, sometimes, sometimes we like kind of our relationships a bit not too deep, right? Deep, but not too deep. Because we know that once we get too deep, it's getting, gonna get messy. So, so we try to be friendly, but not too friendly. Because <laughs> we're worried about kind of wading into the mess of each other's lives. But, but that's not what it means to serve in a Christ-like way. If, if, if I serve you in a Christ-like way, I need to be willing to, to wade into the mess of your lives. And, you, and I want to invite you to wade into the mess that is my life. That's what it means to serve in a Christ-like way. Are we willing to join the church as members in order to commit ourselves to loving and serving this local community? I mean, this is, this is what church membership is all about. It's not, the, it's not administrative. It's, it's not just functional. You know, the point is not to give us voting rights. No, the, the point of church membership is committed love. It's like, you know, church membership is just to say, hey, I'm in. I'm in. I'm throwing in my lot with the rest of you because I want to commit myself to love you and to serve you. And, and, I, and I invite you to enter my life as well. 
as a fellow member. That's, that's what church membership means. So are we willing to join the church as members to commit to loving and serving this local church? Are we willing to serve where we are needed and not just where we want to serve? You know, I can tell you this story. Uh, you know, I, I know this young guy, he was, uh, I guess when I first spoke with him, he was, uh, yeah, he was still in the, no, still in NS. He was doing his NS. So he came up to me one, one day and said, hey, Eugene, you know, I really want to uh, teach in a church. Right? I said, great. You know, and this was a faithful guy. You know, he, was, he loved his Bible. He was reading the Bible with several other guys. So he, he, told me one, he told me one day, hey, Eugene, I really want to teach in a church. You know, I, I feel the calling to teach other men. You know, I feel like I can really lead Bible studies and, and do more teaching. How can I start? So I told him, uh, his name is Daniel. So I told Daniel, uh, why don't you start teaching kids ministry? <laughs> so I think he said, well, uh, that wasn't what I had in mind. You know, I was hoping to teach other guys and disciple other men. But okay, you know, if you, if you think it's a good idea to teach in children's church, then I'll do that. I'll teach in kids ministry. So he went away and he just taught. And uh, a few months later, I had a conversation again with Daniel. I said, hey, Daniel, how's it going? How, how are you enjoying uh, teaching in kids ministry? He says, it's great. <laughs> you know, he says, I, I, I'm learning how to, you know, teach God's truth in a way that four-year-olds can understand. Fantastic. I always say to, you know, I always say to people in seminary, right, if you can teach the Bible to four-year-olds, you can teach anyone. That's your toughest crowd. Right? So, so that was, that's just a good example. You know, Daniel did not want to serve in children's ministry because he thought, you know, not quite my thing, you know, rather disciple other guys. But he was willing to do it. And, and God blessed him richly because of that. I think God used him in the lives of these children, so much so that after that, he, he, he just cut down his other teaching opportunities and he just focused more on children's church because he just felt that that was where he was needed. That was where he could help others grow in the faith, including four-year-olds. So are we willing to serve where we are needed, not just where we want to serve? Are we willing to serve instead of complaining and criticizing when we notice gaps and needs not being met? You know, I think if you notice a gap in the church, I think oftentimes that's an indication that God has gifted you to notice those things. You know, God is kind of saying, hey, because you notice that, that, that could be a sign that God wants you to fill that gap because He's gifted you to notice those things. For example, you know, uh, some, some people notice things like we, we can be more merciful in showing mercy to the community. So I would say, great, you know, God, God's gifted you with the gift of mercy to, to want to show compassion to others. Why not be encouraged to kind of serve in that way? So, are we willing to serve when we notice gaps and needs not being met? Are we willing to serve even if it means inconveniencing ourselves and leaving our comfort zones? Are we willing to serve even if it means submitting our plans, priorities, and preferences to someone else? Or are we just willing to serve if we get to do our own thing, however we want to do it? Are we willing to serve even when someone treats us like a servant? That's tough, right? Are we willing to serve even when what we do is unrecognized, unappreciated, even misunderstood? 
Jesus served us in these ways? No, Jesus will answer yes to all these questions. And, and Jesus says, just as I have served you, you are to serve one another as well. Jesus is building a new city, you know, a new city that is way better than Babel. Jesus' city is a city on a hill, a city that displays the beauty of Him, the, the beauty of His glory to the world. You know, Grace Baptist Church, this is our calling as God's church, as the body of Christ. We are that city on a hill that Jesus has built. Jesus has redeemed us to be His people, shaped by His servant-hearted love and humility. And this is how the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. If we love and serve one another, as Christ has loved and served us. And I, I'm, I'm so encouraged by the many, many examples of Christ-like servanthood that I see among you. You know, I, I hear many, many stories of you know, many of you care for loved ones who are ill. Many of you teach children, children who are not your own as well. You know, many of you open your homes to host small groups, care groups. You know, many of you put in a lot of effort to week after week prepare and lead Bible studies. Many of you invest time to read the Bible with someone else. Many of you help out with all that's needed for our services on Sunday. You know, people who do sound, ushers, refreshments, welcome table, musicians, etc., etc. Many of you serve in these ways. Now, some of you serve by helping new moms with babysitting. Now, many of you visit the elderly and the sick. You know, I, 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 could, I could go on and on just talking about all the examples of Christ-like servanthood that I see among us. So I want to encourage us, what we're doing, do so more and more. Do so more and more. And, and if you know someone who's serving self-sacrificially, you know, why not even now pray and thank God for them in your heart? Say, Dear God, I thank you for so-and-so. This brother, this sister is an example of you, an example of Christ. I just want to thank you for them. And, and better still, when you see them, encourage them, right? When you see them, don't just say, hey, how come we didn't do that? No, encourage them, say, hey, I want, to, I want to tell you that I just prayed to thank God for you. I want to encourage you in what you're doing. Do so more and more. And better still, why not offer to serve with them? Why not offer to serve with them? Jesus calls us to be servants, not consumers. What do our attitudes and actions say about Jesus? You know, Edmund Clowney says, the stairway to the ministry is not a grand staircase, but a back stairwell that leads down to the servants' quarters. That's what it means to serve God's people. Yeah, I want to tell you this little story. I, I knew a, a, a dear lady called Pamela. I met her while I was in the US. Pamela was, Pamela was Brit. She was, she was English. Uh, and, and Pamela, you know, she's, she's, she passed away already, but she was quite old when I knew her. And, and Pamela was a friend of John Stott. You, know, you all know John Stott, right? So Pamela spent some time in the UK before she moved to the US. Uh, and, and she was in the same ministry, the same church as John Stott. So she got to know John Stott. And, you know, I was really intrigued. Wow, you know John Stott. You know, John Stott is this really famous, uh, he passed away in 2011, but John Stott was a really famous Christian pastor and author. I mean, I'm sure many of you, some of you may have read his books and have been helped by his books and, and sermons. So I asked Pamela, hey, Pamela, you know John, you know John Stott. Can you tell me more about him? 
You know, what was he like as a man? It's interesting what Pamela remembered. You know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't what I expected. You know, I, I would think Pamela would say something like, well, I remember John's sermons were so, you know, his sermons were so good, his books were so helpful. You know, I would expect her to say something like that, right? But Pamela didn't remember any of that. But instead, this is what Pamela said. My fondest memory of John Stott was, you know, every Sunday we would have church lunches. And after lunch, I would always see John Stott in the kitchen by himself, washing dishes. That, that was her fondest memory of John Stott. And I think that kind of servant-mindedness, it speaks volumes, more than any well-preached sermon or well-authored book could ever do. That's Christ-likeness. And, and that's the kind of legacy that we want to leave behind as God's people. Friends, Jesus is the servant king who came to serve us for our good. When we believe in him, he transforms us by his grace so that we also serve others from our hearts. This, my friends, is true greatness. It is to love and serve Christ and others because he first loved and served us. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., Everybody, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus. Oh, Father, we thank you that you were willing to give your beloved son. And we thank you that he came not to be served, but to serve. We thank you that he came and emptied himself, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant in order that he might stoop to serve undeserving sinners like us. Oh, Father, we, we, we pray that you will humble our hearts. We, we pray that you will take away pride, take away any self-righteousness in our hearts and, and truly lay our hearts bare before you humble us before you, and help us even now to, to come to you, to, to ask you for grace, to, to, to wash us clean of any pride and self-righteousness. Help us to turn to you in humility, to, to go to Jesus and say, help. Help. And Father, we pray that the love of Christ might fill our hearts. We pray that we will come and know him and, and follow him and serve as he has served us. Humble us as a church. Help us to truly be a picture of Jesus to the world. And we pray these things in his name for his glory. Amen.